0: You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. Is being right more important than being trustworthy? Is it more important than being loving? This week, we talk with Greg Boyd about his book, Letters from a Skeptic, and how as Christians, we can take a posture of intellectual humility and tolerance. Greg shares that we should always be open to dialogue and ready to learn. To avoid an idolatry of intellectual superiority uh, Greg welcome to the podcast we're so glad to have you it's good to be here I appreciate being invited on. would you mind just starting off telling us a bit of your story? Oh, I was born at a very young age.
1: And I didn't learn my name until I was like three. I was really slow. So, no, I'm a, a pastor up here in the Twin Cities, God's country. I'm married to a lovely lady, Shelly, for 41 years. And we've got three kids and six grandkids. And yeah, I, I'm a president of Renew Ministries. It's R-E-K-N-E-W, at Renew.org. And a pastor at Woodland Hills Church. Yeah, so that kind of gives the personal background. I don't know if you want me to go further than that.
0: Would you mind just talking a little bit about the story behind Letters of a Skeptic?
1: Oh, sure. Okay, so that, I'd been a Christian for maybe, I became a Christian in 1974, way back then. Man, I'm old. And I guess it was around the late 80s when I was preparing for a debate with this Muslim guy. And I was supposed to be on, on the identity of Jesus. And I was reviewing all the kind of arguments I'm going to make in this debate, and I I just find them so compelling. The historical arguments for Jesus being, you know, the the embodiment of Yahweh, as N.T. Wright puts it, for for Jesus being uh, who the gospel is presented to be, it's very strong. Now, it grieved me that I had, I've been a Christian now for, you know, going on, I guess, 30 years. I'd never had a chance to really lay out all this evidence for my father. Uh, My father was an atheist. Some days atheist, other days agnostic. It would depend. But, but he was non-believer. And when I first became a Christian, I was too enthusiastic about trying to convert him. (laughs) I turned him off to it, and and he and he was really concerned that I I had had become a one of these born again types. My dad thought Christians were by definition idiots, and he was afraid that I got involved in kind of a cult. Which, looking back on it, was almost was pretty true. It was a pretty uh, it was a Pentecostal stringent church. But uh, so we would have fights over it, and we, we finally just agreed to, to disagree, and we didn't talk about it anymore. Once in a while over the years, I bring up the topic like, yeah, what do you think about God, whatever, and, and he would just like, let's not get into it. it. It doesn't, you know, no one knows. You have your opinions, and I have mine, but I never had a chance to kind of like explain why, although I knew he was getting curious because he thought that I would outgrow this fad in time. He, he said to me when I was, I guess, 17, he goes, my son's too smart to stay a Christian for very long. Well, I ended up, you know, I did lose my faith for a while, but I got it back. And then I ended up going to Yale and going to Princeton and I, I and I stayed a Christian and he was just baffled by that. Like I, I knew he was curious. So I wanted to give him a chance to explain why an intelligent person could be a Christian. And so I, I wrote him a letter and I said, dad, I'm, I'm preparing the stuff for this debate. And it saddens me that I've, you and I've never been able to talk about this, you know, and it seems to me that a father and son should be able to do this. And I, I I'd like to have a correspondence with you, where you allow me to tell you why I'm a Christian, and I allow you to tell me all the reasons why you're not. And so, we started this correspondence that later became Letters from a Skeptic, the book Letters from a Skeptic. And it went on for about three years, but my father, at the age of 74, finally ended up giving his life to Christ. And it was, yeah, it was it was just a beautiful thing. So, that's the backstory on, on, on that.
0: <laughs> that's incredible. You know, a lot of your work has has had a real openness to theological and philosophical exploration. You've engaged skeptics, and and you have a real desire to, you know, do discovery work. And I think that can be really refreshing. It's also challenging for people who come from strong Christian backgrounds sometimes. Can you just maybe share why that's important to you? Why why is that part of your DNA?
1: Well, part of it is that I... I have always, I don't know, I'm not sure where I got this, but I always have had kind of a fear of being duped. It's like, I don't, I I hate being deceived. And for some reason, I'm always suspicious when everyone, when there's a party line that everyone's supposed to have and you're not allowed to question it. Well, I immediately start feeling, okay, wool's being pulled over my eyes and being duped. So I, if something doesn't make sense, I just almost compulsively have to explore it and, and look into it. And I have a conviction that if what you're believing is true, that you shouldn't need to be afraid of anything, be afraid of evidence. If it's true, well, then I should invite criticism of it because it ought to be able to withstand the criticisms. And so I think that's why I've never had a tr- trouble like having dialogues with atheists and skeptics or whatever, because it's just I'm a human being and you're a human being. And, you know, I believe this, but I have to admit that I don't have certainty about very much at all. And so as from human being to human being, let's have a conversation. And that's what I did with my dad. Tell me all the reasons why you have for being where you are and let's see where, where it goes. As I said to my father, if, if nothing else, we'll know each other better. You know, and, and that is, I think, a beautiful thing. And so just to have to have dialogues with people, not from a posture of superiority or I've got the answers and you have to listen to me or, you know, anything like that. But just as one broken human being to another, the only difference is that I think I found some food and, you know, it's that whole thing about, you know, we're all just beg- starving beggars, but I haven't found a loaf of bread and now I want to share it and, and just lay it out there. It doesn't have to be a hard sell. doesn't have to be any kind of pressurized, rather God's going to get you if you don't agree with me. It's just like, here's how I see it and here's why I see it this way. What do you think?
0: You mentioned the story with your father playing a big role in that approach of discovery and exploring and testing truth together. Are there any other stories or areas of your life where you were shaped for that? Well, um, yeah,
1: no, I think it's my father's, you know, I, I, I can psychologize myself all over the place and, you know, try to give that up. But but looking back on it, my father always was a, a real rational skeptic, and I always respected that. I think I just kind of inherited that from him. I guess, you know, part of it also is that that I just, in the process of going through school, so often met Christians who just were not open to dialoguing about things. I mean, one of the reasons why I lost my faith for about a year when I first started going to college is I couldn't find honestly, I couldn't find a Christian who was willing to talk to me and deal with the, the issues that I was confronting. I went to my pastor and I had a chart that showed all the various contradictions between the Gospels. You know, the the different orderings, the details that differ and whatever. I I use highlighter to make it all very clear, very plain. And I went to my pastor, and I've been a Christian for about, I guess, almost a year. But I said, You know, here's all these contradictions. How do we resolve them? How do we continue to believe that the Bible is inerrant when there's these contradictions? His response to me was, and I'm not making this up. He looked at me and he said, Greg, do you have moral sin in your life? And I said, What? He goes, well, have you been inappropriate with women? And I said, no. I, I was telling the truth. I hadn't been. But I said, what does that have to do with the question that's before you? And he said, well, in my experience, no one questions the Word of God unless they're running from some sin. And so th- that that kind of authoritative, God said it, I believe it, that sums it for me, don't ask any more questions, that is, I just see what a turnoff that is, how you you drive anyone with you know any sort of IQ over eighty out of the church. And and so part of it is that there maybe was a time when Christians could gain ground by speaking from a position of authority. We have it and you don't, because there's enough general respect for Christianity perhaps to, to still evangelize that way. But those days are gone. And and now no one gives a crap that what well, you believe, you know, because the Bible said so. Well, who cares? And so we've got to adopt a much more humble sort of a, which I think we should have had all along, but the power evangelism, where you kind of power over people with your authority and threatening hell, it, it just doesn't work any longer. And, and the only thing that does work is where we come with love, we come with care, we come with concern, and we come with humility. And just know why you believe what you believe and share it. Because you want to share something that's so important to you, you want to share it with somebody else. But but you, you don't do it from a position of being above them. You do it from a position of a servant coming under them.
0: So you don't have contempt for curiosity.
1: I invite it all the time. Without curiosity, you're stuck. If you don't have any curiosity, I mean, so many people they live their life as though what they were taught in eighth grade Sunday school is the whole truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth. And so they don't have to think anymore. They go on autopilot. And now, whatever you know intellectual chops they've got, it's used to protect what they already believe rather than to explore the possibility that they're wrong about some things. In a lot of churches, believing the right thing is a matter of salvation. And so your salvation is at stake. And so if if, if my rightness is my salvation, I I know that I'm saved because I have all the right opinions. Well, now I can't genuinely engage in conversations with people that we might threaten that. My salvation is at stake. So this is where Christians develop sort of a butthead attitude and we get a butthead reputation as being intolerant and not open to dialogue and whatever. That actually, I think, is a form of idolatry when when your rightness (coughs) becomes the means by which you're okay. Well, now that is virtually my God. My being right is what saves me. And uh, that's idolatry. I think I'm saved by my relationship with with Jesus Christ. And I, I can tell you why I believe in him and get all my life from from him. But having got my life from Christ, I don't need to be getting my life from being right. I can be proven wrong on everything, but as long as I have enough reasons to keep on living as though Jesus Christ is Lord, because I believe He is Lord, as long as I have that in place, I'm going to be essentially the same person I am. Because my worth is not found in my rightness; it's found in what God thinks about me, as revealed in Jesus, as revealed on the cross, that I've got unsurpassable worth before God. Yeah. So getting life from any other source, I think, is idolatry. It's one that's rampant in the church. Where we we get life by virtue of we belong to the right club, the holy club, as opposed to those unholy people and those heretics. We got the right folks. And that's where self righteousness comes in and all the other nasty stuff that is associated, unfortunately, in our culture with Christianity. You know, Jesus still rates pretty high on opinion polls. Christians rate very low. And why is that?
0: It's tragic. It's a really good point too that in an effort to protect our past, we killed Future possibilities, and then the the other thing maybe you can speak to this too is how do you see the strength of faith when someone is loath to explore other possibilities versus someone who's willing to be open to explore other things that maybe they've that maybe scare them or they're not certain about. Yeah,
1: it kind of goes to the, the model of faith that you have. We have today. I, I write about this in a book called The Benefit of the Doubt, where most people today have what I call a psychological model of faith. And this is the view that holds that your faith is as strong as you are psychologically certain. And so people who say, you know, I believe the Bible and I've never questioned it. It's like, oh, they've got such strong faith. And if that's what a strong faith is, well, then you'll avoid questions like the plague, avoid curiosity like the plague, because remaining psychologically certain is what saves you, which is, I think, another form of idolatry. You're saved by your psychological certainty. But the biblical concept of faith, I submit to you, is not a psychological model. Ancient people weren't into their heads the way we are. The concept of faith, pistis in Greek, is a covenantal concept. It's about trust and being trustworthy in a covenant. And it's, it's more like a marriage. When you say, I do, it, that's an act of faith. Somebody say amen to that. Huh? You're taking a great leap of faith when you get married. But you see, how psychologically certain you are isn't at all relevant as long as you're confident enough to say yes and start walking a certain way. And so my certainty can go up and down all over the place, but I will live every day as though it was true that Jesus Christ is Lord because I have good reasons to believe that He is Lord. Some days I'm more psychologically certain of that than others, but that doesn't matter at all. I'm living, I'm walking in relationship with Him. In fact, far from presupposing certainty, Faith is faith precisely because it presupposes uncertainty. So in Hebrews 11, all these folks were held up as models of faith, and none of them got with what they were promised in this lifetime. So faith isn't a guarantee that something's going to turn out the way you want it to turn out at all. It's really just a decision that I'm going to keep walking in this way. I'm going to walk in this relationship despite the doubts I have. So if you have that model of faith, It frees you to be able to have questions and to be curious. And it's not a denial of faith. For a period of time, I'm not certain about what I think about this topic or that topic or whatever. No, as long as I am staying in this relationship, that's the center of everything and I'm good to go. So I encourage people to adopt a covenantal model of faith, just like they should adopt a covenantal model of the atonement. Really, everything in the Bible is covenantal. So think in terms of a marriage context, not a legal court context.
0: That'll help your marriage go better, too. No doubt. <laughs> well, you know, I just had two other questions. I mean, I have so many questions, but I want to respect the the time that uh, you've given us.
1: These are, good, these are great questions.
0: Is there anything that you would change or rewrite in your book, Letters of a Skeptic? Anything that you would highlight more or now, now that you kind of look in retrospect?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, that book was finished in 92 and my theology has gone through a good bit of evolution since then. You know, my, my take on the Old Testament, it was very different. I've recently written uh, two books on the Old Testament violence and how to interpret them through the lens of the cross. The crucifixion of the warrior God and cross vision. And there's none of that in literature. a skeptic. Back then, I was still trying to justify what God did, you know, provide reasons for it. My, my model of the, of the atonement back when I wrote that book was, I think, more mainstream evangelical than where I'm at now. My whole understanding of the church has is, is grown a lot since then. So, the, the gist of the arguments that I gave that lead me to believe in Jesus in the first place, all those are the same. It's when I respond to certain questions that my father has, especially from chapter 12 on, a few things I changed there, but not, not too much. It's still solid. You're not going to be a heretic if you read that book.
0: I think it's a fantastic book. It said the test time helps so many people. But it, it's so cool to hear that that posture of discovery and exploration that you've you've had all along has continued it's not surprising to hear that like there's things that have changed and and that's okay but it's it's in that walk moving forward like you were describing yeah. what would your hope be letters of skeptic was one that we wanted to focus on for our listeners, you know, who are on that spiritual journey, whether they're exploring faith, <laughs> they hate faith. And they want to disprove it, or maybe they're they're open to it or they're new to faith. They've been walking for a long time and maybe rediscovering faith. If you looked at the body of your work, you know, you you're a scholar, when I was looking at <laughs> when I was looking at different approaches and different angles that we could we could talk with you about, it was kind of like, You have such an expansive field of expertise. It's like choose your own adventure. But (laughs) when you look at your body of work, what would you hope that your legacy of impact would be on people?
1: Oh, well, um, you know, I guess it's that the conviction I work with is that I found that there's legitimate questions that people have, legitimate objections that people have. But if you're willing to think a little bit outside the box, there's good answers to those questions. And so thinking, thoughtful, questioning, and even skeptically inclined people can find their way into the kingdom if we just give them the grace and the space to think it through, encourage you know, freedom of thought, exploration. So a lot of my works kind of give a different perspective on some typical problems because I like the problem of evil and you know how can we be free and yet the future settled and, and all those kind of things. And the traditional answers didn't work for me. And that's how I ended up you know, thinking out. I just come up with a different way of looking at it and offer it to people. Yeah, so I guess it would be that that uh, you can be a thoughtful, intelligent, questioning person and be a Christian, a Kingdom person at the same time. Those are not mutually exclusive things.
0: Mm. And your your work has challenged and maybe even bugged some some people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet you <laughs> love Jesus and you're pressing forward on this journey and um and you're doing it out of love and i just want you to know we're so appreciative of your heart your work and thank you for this conversation
1: thanks so much it's encouraging me to to, you know talk with with leaders like you and you have the same kind of vision of the kingdom same heartbeat and uh you know going about the new way i i really think that the old model of kind of the church militant triumphant you know the church victorious we're going to win that that is going to die. It's already dead in Europe and it's dying here, but it's replacing it. And this is what encourages me is there are people who are finding their way to this humbler way of being Christian. You know, we're living in a post-Christian culture and we're looking more and more, I think, like the church of the first three centuries rather than the church that became Christendom from the fourth century on. And I think that's good news. Some people are, you know, decry that, oh, fewer people are going to church and You know, the Christendom model of churches losing and we're not as influential in the public sphere as we used to be. And they're taking God out of the public schools and all that. They moan that. Well, I'm on the sidelines cheering because I I think that was a surrogate of the kingdom anyways. And the sooner we're rid of that, you know, people think that Christianity is about fighting for the right to pray before football games or whatever. And those become token things that just get in the way of what real discipleship is. You know, and, and so I'm encouraged when I can engage with folks like you uh you're doing great kingdom work keep it
0: up likewise and the kingdom is it's like that yeast in the bread it's growing even when people don't see it or know it and it's transforming our world so thanks for being one of those catalysts it really is well
1: thanks for having me on yeah god bless bless you
0: you've been listening to common grace a whitewater church podcast To learn more about us, visit us online at whitewaterchurch.org or reach out to info at whitewaterchurch.org. Thanks for listening.